0: Well, good morning, Emmanuel Bible Church. My name is Pastor Mark, and glad to be back with you this morning and leading you in the Word of God. We're finishing a 12-week sermon series through the book of Job, and so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd encourage you to turn to Job chapter 42. It's the last chapter in the book, and it's uh, the chapter that's going to serve as the foundation for our study this morning. We're going to make our way through that last chapter. Appreciate Pastor Ian leading us, uh, leading you, and leading us in the Word of God last week while I was away. Uh, Led you through Job thirty-eight through forty-one, which is uh, God's speech in the book of Job, and did an excellent job leading you in the Word. I'm so grateful for that. I I will comment briefly on uh, while we were away. Um, uh, Those of you who've been around here for a good while, you know that uh, over a decade ago, uh, my wife and I uh, embarked on a great adventure. Uh, We uh, desired to bike across the country from the Pacific to the Atlantic, and bike uh, our bikes across the country. And uh, we uh, determined that we were not gonna be able to do that in one setting at any given point in time, and so we decided that we'd knock off just a little chunk of that every year, and over the last 10 years we've been doing that. And uh, we biked across uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin then uh, the Upper Peninsula and the Lower Peninsula, biked across Canada and to New York, biked across uh, New York and upstate New York and Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and then we went all the way out west and uh, we biked across the state of Oregon and then Idaho and then Montana, and uh, we saved North Dakota for the last state. And uh, because no one wants to bike across North Dakota. It's just not a biking destination. Uh, big agricultural land and no block in the wind and solid sun. and So we just uh, we saved North Dakota for the last trip. And last year, if you were here, you know that we did a, an eight-day ride across North Dakota. Well, we got four days into that ride. And my wife, who has been with me through this entire adventure, uh, my wife became ill. And so she missed the last four days of a cross-continental bike ride. That's like getting to the the 100-yard line at a a marathon and not being able to finish. And uh, so I finished with a few guys that were biking with us, and we knew that we'd have to go back this year and finish off those last four days. And so that's what we did, and that's where we were. That's why I was away from you. We went back, and we took the four days that we needed to complete in North Dakota, stretched it into a five-day trip, and uh, we were biking along and enjoying, enjoying ourselves very well, had a great time, had some other people that joined us on this trip. There were six riders all together, and on uh, day four, some of you are aware of this, on day four, we got up in the morning, we slept in, because it was gonna be our shortest ride, and uh, we had a big breakfast in the little town of Cooperston, North Dakota, and uh, we finally took off on our, on our bike trip. I uh, had a short day, the wind was at our back, the sun was in our face, it was absolutely beautiful, and uh, we got a mile and a quarter out of town, and the easiest way to describe this is we ran into a, a rough patch of pavement. And um, three bikers made it through, And uh, I was the third of those three that made it through that rough patch. And I looked back in my rearview mirror and watched my wife go down on her bike. And then immediately after that, Kurt Schwanke went over her. And immediately after that, Phil Luter went over him. And so if you've ever watched a bike race on TV and you see the front guy wipe out and everyone just kind of piles in on top, that's exactly what happened. And uh, my wife was the first one to go down. She got a, a scraped knee and a scraped ankle. Uh, Kurt Schwanek he was the next one to go over, and uh, he got a little worse, he, he banged up his head and had bleeding like a sieve from his forehead, and uh, he was one of the first ones on his feet, and he's walking around shaking and holding his hands out, and uh, he has a finger that's going completely sideways that was just not pleasant to look at, and uh, Phil was the last one to go over, and he's laying alongside the road in a fetal position, and uh, he's just really hurting, he's in, he's in bad shape. And uh, so that, that was a colossal accident just a mile and a quarter into our ride, a mile and a quarter outside of the town of Cooperston, North Dakota. And uh, the interesting thing is uh, we're, we're in a bad shape. I stop immediately and I start getting phones and bike parts out of the road and, and uh, trying to attend to bodies. And uh, the car that was watching this happen, the car that was coming on us actually watched it happen, stopped, and uh, the lady jumps out of the car and she's like, I'm a paramedic, how can I help? And I'm like, have at it. It's all yours. <laughs> the guy with the broken fingers is in bad shape. And the guy on the ground, we have no idea what's going on there. And um, so she, the, the first one to stop was a paramedic. Uh, the second lady to stop was a nurse. And she was heading into her, um, uh, her shift for the hospital. And the next car that stopped had waters for us and all sorts of help. And, uh, and so anyways, we, we had an ambulance that come out immediately and took Kurt and Phil to the hospital. And uh, uh, Phil ended up breaking two ribs in two places and broke his collarbone. And so he's not here this morning. He's still recovering. He spent multiple days in the hospital out in North Dakota. But after all that is over, and we got people in the hospital and people situated there, and we, we put some bikes back together. My wife, my wife had to finish the trip, and so I took parts off my bike, put it on her bike, and said, have at it, and she finished with, uh, with uh, John Schultz and uh, Kurt, uh, no, Mark Kinzer. But after we got everyone in the hospital and bikers back on the road and, and are taking care of things, uh, we, we certainly spent some time in prayer, and, and of course, we've been going through the book of Job together over the course of the summer. And, um, and it's interesting to pray, after an accident like that, we are, we are genuinely thankful that the first car is a paramedic. Tremendous help to us. I mean, a huge help. And the next one stops is a nurse. And, and I saw her at the hospital. I mean, I saw her on the site, and then I went back to the hospital, and I saw her there, and she was helping out there. And so super grateful for a paramedic, super grateful for a nurse. Uh, That morning when we were having breakfast in Cooperstown, North Dakota, everyone there, some of the townspeople, they were so proud of their brand new hospital. Like, it's brand new. And a larger hospital system in Fargo had developed them for them, and they were were so proud of their hospital. It was a mile away from us. And so as we're, we're, we're praying about these things, we're super thankful for the paramedics, super thankful for the nurse, super thankful for a brand new hospital not even a mile away. But then the thought hits you, if God can provide a paramedic and a nurse in a hospital, couldn't he have stopped this from happening? Couldn't, couldn't he have had angels about us that just protected us from that happening? Y'all are too silent. <laughs> he, he could do that, right? So we're, we're grateful for the help and grateful for the nurses and the hospital. And, but couldn't God have kept this from going on? And then the other part of that, coming out of the context of Job, uh, the book of Job, is we could play uh, Job's friends. Say maybe, maybe Kurt and Phil they got some sin in their life. Maybe there's some things they ought to be repenting of. You know, they I didn't go down. <laughs> so why does that happen? Boy, that's, it's, it's a mystery, right? We're not going to be able to map that out. But, but God, God knows all about it. And God was graciously involved in ways in which we needed help. And, but, but God has permitted this thing in, in ways that we can't, we, can't, we can't map out. Way too big for us. And so with that in mind, we, we come to the end of the book of Job. And we've seen Job go through this epic, colossal calamity in his own life. And uh, we, we've seen his friends come along and, and, and accuse him of, you know, he needs to get right with God, and if he would just repent, then God would bless him again, and they got it all wrong, and Job saying, I'm innocent. And, and then we hear God speak in the end, and basically God just blows them away with his own wisdom and running things, and, and here we find ourselves in the very last chapter, Job chapter 42. And uh, we're going to work our way for our message right through this chapter, and so I, I ask you to follow along as I read. Before we do, let's, let's just look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at this message. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your grace and your kindness to us in immeasurable ways. And Father, now as we reach the end of this study, and as we look at this very last chapter, I pray that you might continue to teach us, continue to, to open our eyes to who you are and to what you've done for us, and uh, to awe us with your, your grace and kindness to us, and uh, to also... May we stand in awe of your wonderfully working all things for your own glory and for our good, often in ways in which we cannot begin to comprehend today. So teach us, I pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Job chapter 42, verse 1. It begins by saying, Then Job answered the Lord. So the Lord has spoken to Job, and now Job answers the Lord and said, Now I want to pause here for just a moment because this is remarkable. This is interesting and very remarkable because if we would remember back in our study through the book, in chapters 29, 30, and 31, we read what we thought and what everyone thought was Job's last speech, and here he is speaking again. Matter of fact, in Job 29, 30, and 31, the end of chapter 31, it says the words of Job are ended, and the the, the speech that we uh, read there, it sounded like Job's last will and testament. And the speech that he gives in those chapters, it sounds as though Job is about to pull the covers over his feet and breathe his last because his life is over. And no one expects him to live. And so that's what it looks like. But here, you know, everyone, including Job, thought he was a goner. But but here we read that Job is speaking again God has preserved his life. And God has spoken to him and sustained him. And here Job is speaking. His life is not over. This is quite remarkable. Matter of fact, the very last sentence of this book, at the end of chapter 2, it says that Job lived a long life full of days. That in itself is a reminder to us, the readers, that we are not the Lord of our days. We are not the captain of our ship. We are not the masters of our fate. God above is the one who gives life and sustains life by his powerful word. Our days are in his hands. We see the future... Darkly, as through a glass. We don't see the future clearly, but God sees it with full clarity. And so here, as we just break into the very first sentence, we find Job is speaking again, and we understand that God has Job in his hands, and God numbers his days, and this is just another reason to trust God fully, to trust him completely. Well, what does Job say? Let's look back into the text. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's quite a lesson, a lesson that's come out of Revelation. God said, Who is this that hide counsel without knowledge? Job responded, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. God said, Here, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Job responded, I have... Heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise and repent in dust and ashes. I, in other words, I regret my foolish words and I change my thinking regarding God and creation and suffering humanity. There's a couple of lessons, a couple of great lessons that are coming out of this uh, paragraph. Uh, the first one is this God is powerful and purposeful and wonderful beyond imagination. Job has come into this epic experience of great calamity, great calamity that he did not bring upon himself as a result of his own foolish decisions or foolish actions. It came from out of the blue, if you will. It literally came from heaven, and no one saw this coming. In his trial, Job has been discipled. He's been positively disciplined by the Lord in the process, and God has revealed himself to Job in powerful ways, both in the speech that we read last week and and, and through the trial that he's brought Job through. And Job now has experientially learned that God can do all things. God can do everything he pleases because no purpose of God can be thwarted, not even by evil. Even evil will not derail the Lord. And Job has reached the conclusion that God sustains all of creation with wisdom that is wonderful beyond imagination. And so so Job has this experiential knowledge of God's power and ability and wonder that is beyond words. You know, again, if we go back to the beginning of the story, we would be reminded that Job administrated his own small little empire. Job had his own little empire going. He had a family that he... Parented with wisdom, his children loved one another and loved him. He had a family, he had a farm, a large agricultural enterprise. He had a flourishing business, he had a faithful reputation. But Job lost all of that in a moment. It was gone. Gone in a day. So Job administered this small empire like a small G God of his domain, but he lost all of it. But Job, having come through this trial and now having heard from God in last week's reading... He knows that God administrates the entire cosmos. And he hasn't lost control of a single thing. From plankton in the sea to the farthest stars, from amoebas to mountain goats, and everywhere in between, God is in control. And God is running his world with wisdom, wisdom that is beyond what we can fathom. As the old song goes, he has the whole world in his hands. He has the whole universe in his hands and he's running things with wisdom and even the complexity of evil serves him. Even Satan who thinks he can derail God cannot do it. God will take even that which is evil and use it for good. So the the, the problem of pain and suffering and evil is so often a great mystery to us. Uh, we We don't know why things happen the way they do and we want answers and we want reason and we want purpose. You know, I started with the illustration, why, why does why does curtain Phil go down? We want to know why. Why them? Why not us? Why, why does that happen at all? There's this whole problem of pain and suffering and evil, it's a mystery, and we search for answers and reasons, but God, God's not confused, and God has not lost control, and the universe is not being fumbled around. And Job has reached this conclusion when he says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And Job concludes his speech with saying, Therefore, I despise, I regret my foolish arguments that I was making, and I've changed my mind concerning God and humanity and the running of the universe. So, the first lesson coming from this concluding paragraph is God is powerful, purposeful, and wonderful beyond imagination. And we see that developing throughout the book, but now Job states it very succinctly. Uh, The second uh, lesson that we learn from this uh, paragraph is Job has been lovingly humbled. He now sees God, the world, and suffering humanity in a clearer way. God has lovingly humbled Job. In humility, Job isn't thinking lower of himself. He's not belittling himself. Job is just no longer thinking of himself. He's looking beyond himself at God and creation and humanity, and he has a much clearer and more accurate perspective and understanding on God and the world and humanity than he did before the trial began. Job, who has hung on to God through the trial, has become a better man as a result of it, less selfish, less self-regarding, more god knowing, and his compassion for others undoubtedly has increased. As you read this book, you discover from both Job's mouth and from the mouth of his friends that before the trial, Job was a help to the poor. He was eyes to the blind and feet for the lame, and he was a, he was a great help to those who were oppressed. But now through the trial, Job has become poor, He's become needy. He became the taunt of of people who ridiculed him because now he had lost everything. Job now knows this experientially. He now knows what he did not know before. And he has a much, you you, got to understand that Job was a very wealthy man and he loses all his wealth and he becomes poor. And it wasn't the result of his own foolishness or foolish actions or foolish decisions. He didn't lose his money in a bad business adventure. It was all taken from him by terrorists. And now he has an understanding that not everyone becomes poor because of foolish decisions or bad lifestyles. And, and, and he who was a help to the poor before now sees God and suffering humanity in brand new ways. And God has lovingly humbled him. He loves him enough to humble him. And Job knows experientially things he did not know before. His faith and his knowledge of God, his view of God, his faith in God has deepened. And his view of himself and his compassion for humanity has increased. So God loves him enough to humble him. And in the humbling, God has made Job a better man, a much better man, more humble as Jesus is. All right, let's read the next paragraph, beginning in verse seven. Uh, Job has spoken, and now the Lord is going to speak. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, that's the oldest friend of the trio, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, Bildad and Zophar, For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job shall pray for you. I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namanite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now, for those of you who've been involved in the study, you know that this is a colossal reversal. All along, Job's friends have been telling Job, Job, you certainly, you must have sinned. You must have offended God, and now he's getting you. He's disciplining you with harsh discipline. You must have sinned, so therefore, Job, if you would, if you would just repent and get right with God, he would, he would bless you again. And now God is the one who comes to Job's friends and says, it's not Job that's in the wrong. You're in the wrong. What you've said about me and how you've misrepresented me makes me angry. So now Job's friends are getting the knowledge that God isn't angry at Job, God is angry at them. He's saying, Job hasn't sinned, but you have. What a colossal reversal. And Job's friends, if they had the accurate theology, if their theology concerning God was right, then they should be shaking in their boots. Because their theology all along is Job, you must have sinned, and God judges sinners, and he's, He's getting you, and now they're hearing from God that they're the ones in the wrong, they're the ones who are sinning. So, what should they be expecting? God's gonna punish us. We deserve the stripes, we deserve the strict punishment. If our theology is right and we've sinned against God, what can we expect? Nothing but a blasting. But what does God do? What does God do? he's gracious to them he says to job's friends make an offering have job pray for you i will accept the offering and job's prayers and i will not deal with you as your sins deserve you think they're learning something about god here you you, you think their thoughts on god might be changing because they didn't have that in the box, that God was gracious and patient and generous to sinners. Their thought was God gets sinners. So here's the big lesson. God is gracious to sinners. That's the best news ever. God does not deal with sinners as their sins deserve. God devises means to reconcile sinners to himself and bring them home. Job's friends didn't have that in their thoughts all along, and now God is revealing that to them. I'm gracious to sinners. You have Job pray for you, you make an offering, and I'll accept the prayer, I'll accept the offering, and I'll forgive you and not treat you as your folly deserves. You've been misrepresenting me with your language, with your speech, but you have, you have Job pray, and I'll forgive you. I'll be gracious to you. You know, moving forward from the biblical text out of the pages of the Old Testament into the pages of the New Testament, we learn that God has made a once-for-all sacrifice for sin in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus, crucified for our sin. Jesus, risen from the dead. He is seated at the Father's right hand, and he prays for us, and his prayers are accepted. And those who trust in God's offering, those who trust in Jesus Christ have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to their sin ledger and they are forgiven and they are accepted and they're transferred from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom, the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is grace. This is kindness undeserved. This is benevolence that we cannot begin to imagine. This is the the grace that frees us and redeems us and restores us. We sang about it this morning. This is the, the grace that we boast about. This is the grace that we sing about. God has not treated me as my sins deserve, as my folly deserves. I've sinned against him. My offenses are great. Jesus paid for those sins in his own body at the cross. That was a once for all sacrifice for sin. No more sacrifices need to be made. And through trusting Jesus Christ, I'm forgiven and accepted. What kindness. God is gracious To sinners. It makes you want to cry and dance all at the same time. So Job's friends learned this. Their theology about God was wrong. Their theology was man, God just gets sinners. That's why Job's getting it. And they had it all wrong. Final paragraph, let's read the final paragraph, verses 10 through 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job another measure of God's grace, when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, his siblings, and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning." And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys, how wealth was measured in those days. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He called the name of his first daughter Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen. We're just going to forget that hyphenated name altogether. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers And after this, Job lived 140 years. He saw sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and Job died an old man full of days. Here's here's the last lesson that I want to share from this final paragraph. Job's restoration is not a reward of righteousness. Job was righteous at the beginning. Job's restoration is not a reward of righteousness, but rich generosity from a gracious God. It was Job's righteousness that was, in a sense, a reason behind the trial. God was the one who pointed Job out and said, hey, have you taken notice of my servant Job? He's righteous, a blameless man, upright in all of his ways. And that that begins a contest between God and Satan that results in this calamity that we've read about. So Job was righteous at the start. Job's restoration just reveals the gracious, generous nature of God who delights in the pleasure of his children. We can stand back from the book of Job and we can look at it all and we can say God was good in permitting the trial. God was good in permitting the trial. Job couldn't understand it. His friends couldn't understand it. But God was good in permitting the trial. It made Job a better man for sure in the end. Gave him a higher view of God and a better view of suffering humanity. God was good in permitting the trial. God was good in restoring Job after the trial was over. This is just a evidence of his gracious, generous nature. You know, people I often talk to about the book of Job, they, they love the book of Job for this last paragraph. They think, oh, yeah, Job went into this colossal epic trial, but God restored everything in the end, and that, that just is so wonderful. God restores everything in the end, and, and that's why they love this book. With that in mind, I want to point out a couple of things in these final paragraphs that often get overlooked. Uh, the first one is Job's fortunes were restored, certainly, but he still still suffered irreplaceable loss. The story begins, and Job experiences the death of his 10 children. You don't replace them. They're not replaced with 10 new children. He still has the loss of 10 children, and that loss will remain with him. Why do you think it says that his brothers and sisters, during all of this fortunes being restored, they show him sympathy and they comfort him? See, sometimes there are loss, particularly the loss of a loved one, and that remains with us. But even as we go through trials and suffering and come out the other side and God is good and gracious and kind, sometimes that loss that we still endure, even in times of great enjoyment and pleasure, serve us in, well way, in good ways. The loss of a loved one in particular makes us rightly long for the restoration of all things in a new heaven and a new earth where sin and death and evil will be no more. And so this will serve Job well, uh, even as he comes through this time of restoration. The eradication of evil, the death of death, will take place on a redeemed and restored new earth. The second lesson that's often overlooked in this last paragraph, obviously, again, the, the, the attention is on the restoration of Job's fortunes, which is God's gracious nature. But the second one is uh, the, the very last sentence of the book often over, gets overlooked as well. The very last sentence of the book said, and Job died. What does that tell you? Job died. He, he died an old man and full of days. And, and he saw four generations of his children, which is it was fantastic, but, but, but he died. That tells me the trials of Job recorded in this book are not Job's final trials. There are trials that he experienced that are not recorded, and this would be his greatest one facing the trial of his greatest enemy, death. Job, what Job learned from the prior trials, the ones recorded in this book, and those of us who have read through the whole book and have attended this whole study, those lessons that Job learned in this book, namely, he as a mediator, he has a redeemer, chapter 19. He has a god of wisdom, chapter 28. There is a resurrection and God is a powerful over resurrection. These truths and this knowledge of God will guard him through all future trials. Job is trusting in God who is powerful and purposeful and wonderful. Uh, Job Job's hope doesn't lie in his virtuous living. And Job's hope doesn't lie in religious laws and religious principles and and doing those well and administrating his life with wisdom. Job's hope lies in God himself. And in the end, he's going to die. He's going to face that last great trial of death. But he can do so now with the knowledge of God, that God is his mediator. Chapter 9. God is his redeemer. Chapter 19. God is his wisdom. Chapter 28. God is his resurrection and go through that trial with that new foundation. So so Job has come to trust in God who provides. One last word before we close off on the book of Job uh, for now and for good but as we stand back from the book of Job and as we think through this whole experience Job entered into suffering unwillingly. He didn't sign up for it. He didn't plan for it. He didn't bring it on himself with foolish decisions and foolish actions. It happened. In the hands of God's providence, Job suffered. And he suffered outside of his choice and outside of his control. Jesus, taking a pointer from Job straight to Jesus, Jesus willingly submitted to undeserved and unjust suffering, to redeem and restore a people who were cut off from God because of their sin. Job suffered unwillingly. Jesus chose the path of suffering, willingly, purposefully, lovingly. You and I, we avoid suffering at all costs. We we don't want to suffer, and if we can avoid suffering, we'll do it. The only way we might choose to suffer is if we might shield someone that we love from suffering. We might do that. Jesus entered into suffering for us, for you, for me. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, he was born a human, which means he came into our sin-cursed experience. And he was fully man. And as a man, he experienced weakness, weakness, Hunger, pain, loss, tears, deprivation, temptation, poverty, injustice, cruelty, violence, abandonment, fickleness, unfaithfulness, corruption, deception, hatred, evil. Jesus fully identified with humanity in becoming a man and he completely experienced the sufferings of evil and he did it purposefully to the glory of his father to the good of creation and for the salvation of mankind. I like what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, and I'll read this. It says, "...but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, became a man, namely Jesus, crowned now with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus wasn't putting off imperfections. But he learned as a man, experientially our experience of suffering, of evil, of cruelty. Cruelty. "...bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things." that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, Job suffered unwillingly. He didn't sign up for it, didn't plan for it. In God's providence, it came to him. God made him a better man through it. Jesus, the lover of our souls, in the fellowship of the Trinity, before the world began, he chose the way of suffering to display the glory of his Father, to display and give God's love and for the restoration of creation and the redemption of mankind. How how remarkable Makes me think of the old song. It was one of my grandmother's favorites. It said, oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the love that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Jesus willingly suffered. He did that for you. And he did that for me. So that he might reconcile us to God. He's coming again, and when he comes and ushers in his kingdom, there will be no more evil, and there will be no more death. For the old order of things will be put away. We look forward to his return and long for that day. But I'll end the book of Job by pointing beyond the sufferings of Job to the sufferings of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus that purchased, as we sang this morning, our liberty, our freedom, our salvation. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you. Certainly, you conduct this world with wisdom that is beyond us, and and, and nothing can thwart your plans, and you can do all things, and you are a merciful, faithful, great, and mighty God, and even evil serves your purposes. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who has taken on death for us and defeated it in his own death and resurrection. We thank you that through faith in Jesus Christ you apply to our sin ledger the blood of Jesus which cleanses us from all sin. We thank you that through Jesus Christ we are accepted by you. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. What a gracious, loving God you are. Father, we thank you for the book of Job. We thank you for the many things that we've learned from it. We pray that you would bless us as a congregation as we continue to persevere in the study of your words so that we might trust you and bring you pleasure by doing your will and the power that you provide us for the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.